We're, we're podcasting live from the Islamic Center of Central Missouri, Columbia, Missouri. In the name of God, the most gracious, the most merciful, uh, peace and prayers be upon Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him and all of the prophets. Assalamu uh, alaikum. May peace and blessings of God be upon you. He didn't mention also that I'm from Oklahoma, so I'd like to congratulate you. Um, you're now one in 11. I understand that when you beat us, you sell shirts about it. When we beat you, it's just kind of like we beat Missouri. But it's all good. Yeah, we're a little bit upset about it, but we'll, 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 we'll overcome. Um, as he mentioned uh, some things about me, um, just to, to reiterate, reiterate that I became Muslim in 1992. I'm not here to sell you on Islam or to get into some type of theological um, debates. It's not really my style. But just to share with you uh, perhaps a voice which is not really heard, um, that's kind of lost, I think, in translation. Uh, I lived in Egypt for seven years, as he mentioned. I came back about two and a half months ago where I lived with my children, uh, my wife and my children, and I studied and I worked uh, in the, what's called, he said it in Arabic, I think we should translate it in English, which is basically the center for Sharia, Sharia law verdicts uh, in Egypt for two years and trained there for two years. So when I came back to America, um, I wasn't really expecting to fall into kind of the, the madness that we found with the Park 51 controversy and then also the, uh, the simultaneous uh, you know, concern about Sharia uh, law. Just to give some background, I became Muslim in 1992. Um, I want to thank also, sorry, the BCC for having this program or letting us use this facility, university, the Muslim Student Association, and you. Um, but I was about to pledge Alpha Phi Alpha. I don't know if anyone here is a cap or an Alpha. Um, my freshman year in college. Um, and then I happened to start reading books about Islam prior to that. And being a hip-hop DJ, which he did allude to, I always tell people that my first Muslim teachers were Rakim, uh, KRS-One, Public Enemy. I don't know if you know even who those people are. Uh, we had Big Wayne. You got Little Wayne. Um, and back then, 50 Cent was Change. <laughs> and bling bling with silverware. But um, at that time, the hip hop community, I went to an inner city high school. Uh, I played basketball for an inner city high school until I hurt my knee. So I was exposed to kind of a Afrocentric political conscious that existed in the hood that has been replaced since with lollipop and other type of, you know, mind boggling things. Uh, and that really led me to start to look into Islam, especially through the Nation of Islam. I had friends who were in the Nation of Islam. So I'd ask them, if I'm the white devil, how can we be friends? And we'd have these kind of discussions while we'd be, you know, smoking certain type of substances. And then, and then that was before I was Muslim. And, um, and then slowly uh, getting culture to some extent, reading, uh, getting a copy of the Quran at the age of around 17, 18 years old, uh, reading it. And then my freshman year in college, I became Muslim. And, and I think one thing that, that we lack as a Muslim community is the American voice um, that is, I, I think, tends to look at Islam very differently, differently than, and I don't mean to say this, to create a dichotomy, the immigrant community. And I think a lot of what you see on TV or what you hear is coming from kind of an, an immigrant set of social constructs, whereas you never really hear uh, a lot of times what it means to be a Muslim in America just as an American. And what I mean by that is that as being born in America, raised in America, and being a fan of the Oklahoma Sooners, um, I was able to, you know, basically organically understand certain freedoms. 
Whereas I think in the case of many immigrant communities, and I'm not saying this to debase anyone, they suffer a lot of times from autocratic residue. And when they come from overseas, they're not quite used to some of the freedoms that we have or we might take for granted here. And for that reason, as an American convert to Islam, I didn't really have to deal with this battle of justifying living in America or coming to grips with being an American and a Muslim because I was American my entire life. And what we find a lot of times with people who might come from overseas and have certain uh, viewpoints towards America, and they find actually that in America you can practice Islam much more freer than you can in most Muslim countries, there tends to be this kind of battle or this struggle internally or psychologically to understand what's going on. Another thing that allows me to, to have some uh, sway, as you will, is that I can be critical without worrying about a certain ethnic group coming and getting, getting, getting at me, so to speak. Um, definitely our communities are based on ethnic lines. Uh, you'll find in some communities even mosques, which are like Arab, the Arab mosque, the Pakistani mosque, the black mosque. You don't have a white mosque yet. Um, but you do have definitely mosques which are based on color or ethnicity. For a white convert from Oklahoma, I don't have to worry about, you know, the Oklahoma posse coming and, like, tearing me to pieces if I'm critical of the Muslim community. And, and I think that in many regards, those who are converts to Islam um, and have studied Islam are able to be somewhat of a fair critic uh, of the East and the West. And what I will share with you is, is, is my experiences uh, in the Muslim community, some of my concerns, and then as a scholar of Sharia, some, something I trained in for 17 years, uh, he didn't mention everything like I memorized the Quran in Oklahoma, of all places, uh, in Arabic, not in English. Um, then I studied there. Some things that I see as a concern for Muslims in general uh, in America and, 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 and Islam in America. Number one, um, when we talk about Islam, uh, and especially the concept of Sharia, I think it's good to touch on that because this is the hot you know, term now is being politicized. People are basing their elections on it. And if you ask most people, even those people who are very anti-Islamic or anti-Sharia, what is the basic meaning of Sharia in the Arabic language? What are the foundations of Sharia law? They will not even be able to talk to you about that. They don't have enough literacy to even engage the discussion. So it's very emotional. Um, and you'll find also the same thing in Muslim countries. Uh, in many cases in Egypt, and I'm not saying this to disrespect any Egyptians, because I know how you roll. Um, but I remember that I would take a taxi in Egypt, you know, white dude. Um, and I lived in St. Louis, by the way. Um, I used to go to Mother's Fish House. So took a taxi, and someone asking me, Antim and Fien, which in Egyptian slang means, like, where are you from? So then I told them that I'm American, and they would say, That basically means I seek refuge in God from the devil. So then I would say to them, Leia Habibi, you know, why? Why do you have to say that? He's like, well, you know, Baywatch and Lil Wayne and, and the Kardashians and Botox. And you know, basically the understanding of American culture is almost that of what we see many of, of, of people in this society. Not a lot, but some who are very anti-Islam. Their, their understanding of Islam is almost equal to their understanding of the West. Uh, so then I just try to engage in a conversation. And over time, they would be a little bit shocked. First of all, they were like, how can Americans be Arabic? You know? So I said, well, I learned Arabic. Okay, that makes sense. Then how can an American be Muslim? Like, they almost couldn't believe that. Can an American actually be Muslim? Like, are these anonyms? And through time, through discussion, through talking, uh, they would end up you know, usually not wanting to take the cab money from me because they would you know, they'd be very impressed, very happy to see and hear about what's going on in America. They would ask me, like, are there mosques in America? 
I was like, yeah, there's mosques. You know, probably in every city in America, there's like, you know, at least more than 30, 40 mosques. Like, really? Like, can you pray there? He's like, is it locked up? Like, do they, do, they, do they allow women to wear scarves? You know, can you pray? Can you do this? Again, they're looking at America through an autocratic lens, which they themselves have experienced. And basically just explaining to them, no, you know, actually in America you could probably do more Islamically than you can in many of these Middle Eastern countries, unfortunately. So what I would do is just share with you some ideas on Sharia and my reflection as an American Muslim. And, and, and to, to let you know that there are people out there who don't, answer for Muslim countries. I'm not responsible for what goes down in Saudi Arabia. I'm worried about next week, you know. I'm not going to say who I'm voting for because I'm in Missouri, but let's put it that way. But my concern are the elections next week in the 2012. I'm not really concerned about the king of Saudi Arabia. I have no influence on the king of Saudi Arabia. So when people come and ask me, are you a Muslim? I'm like, yeah, I'm a Muslim from Oklahoma. And they're like, well, what do you think about what's going on in Sudan? Well, I denounce what's going on in Sudan. Yeah, but what, you, what, what are you doing? I can't do anything for Sudan, yo. I mean, I can do my best. I mean, George Clooney can go there. He's got money. But at the end of the day, my ability to influence Middle Eastern policy or politics or be responsible for that is not fair. It's just like me going to you and saying, your, your great-grandparents were from Scotland, so what do you think about what's going on in Scotland right now? Or your great-grandparents were from Ireland. Are you responsible for what's going on in Ireland? Or Africa. All of us now, basically, who have converted to Islam are Americans, and we look at our experience as Americans as something that's natural and organic. And in many cases, the immigrant comes to America and looks at America as a sense of, oh, my God, I'm in America, and i got to protect my kids, right? But for me, I came out of the hood. I came out of America. I don't have a problem functioning in America. And we find an important axiom in Islamic law that many of the converts hold on to, and that's al-asuf al-asha'idaha, that says in sharia, sharia Islam, the, the law of Muslims, that the origin of things is permissibility. Yeah, the origins of things is permissibility. Meaning, I don't start out by asking if I can do it. No, I'm like Nike. I just do it. <laughs> but for someone who comes here maybe with cultural baggage, and that makes sense. When I went to Egypt, I was holding on to my babies. Oh, no, don't go to the market date. You know, my daughter, I was scared about my son. And, you know, I was very concerned because I had never lived in that cultural element before. So I felt threatened, culturally threatened. Right? The night that the Egyptians got beat by the American soccer team, I had to step out of the house, right? I could have walked around here with the Oklahoma Sooner Shot and not worried about anything, even if we beat you. Well, I don't know about that. But in Egypt, because I felt, and I came to grips, I was like, why do I feel this way? It's not religion, it's culture. So for us, those of us, many of us, not all of us, and I'll talk about this uh, later on also, that converts do have a problem uh, in the community as well, and we also bring our own baggage. But for many of us, our approach towards American society is one that we're, we're already in the race. We're already swimming in that water. We don't have a problem synthesizing our religion necessarily with the fact that we've lived in this country our entire lives. And that living in America has granted us certain freedoms which are found in Islamic law which don't even exist in Muslim countries. So we tend to look at things kind of from a different perspective, not of I have to protect and look after and, sh and shelter myself. No, but from the point of I need to synthesize, I need to play a part of, and I need to be critical in, in a constructive way. And I need to speak to power in America through my religion and bring something good to the table. The word sharia, actually in Arabic, and this is very important, it's, it's funny. Non-Muslims bring notepads more than Muslims. What's up with you Muslims? I mean, don't you feel ashamed? See, I'll call the Muslims out because I'm, I'm from the white boy club. We ain't got no problems. You know, because ethnically, no one's going to beat me up later on. Well, maybe the Egyptians. But 
got the non-Muslims, man. Mashallah, mashallah means, you know, God's will be done. They got na- notebook, paper. They're taking notes. They're learning. Now, come on, come on, brothers and sisters. You got to take your religion more seriously. So the word sharia comes from a word which means a watering hole in the desert, an oasis. What they call mashra'atul ibl, which was the place where the Bedouins, many, many, many years ago, would take their animals to take drink water from. Also, people who lived in the desert, the nomads, which are called Bedouins, and the word Araba means to move. That's why the language is called Al-Arabiya. Because the Arabic language, the vowels always move up and down, like this. And that's why they're called Al-Arabs. The Arabs are called Arabs because they used to be nomadic people. So we call a truck what in Arabic? Al-Arabadi, right? The truck which is used to move things around. This is where the word Arabic comes from. So the Arabs were nomadic people, and they used to, you know, they used to constantly move and find water. That source of water in the middle of the desert that gave them life was called Sharia. And this is before the time of the Prophet Muhammad, called Sharia, and it was given this name in the Quran in different places. And Allah talks about the law of uh, God talks about the, the law of, of of the Levitical law as well as the law uh, that other prophets brought. And he said that every nation has minhaja, shar'ata wa minhaja, which means every nation has a sharia, every nation has a law, minhaja and a method and a way. Also the word sharia means a straight path. So we find in the Quran, Allah says, uh, God Almighty says in the Quran, ثُمَّ جَعَلْنَاكَ عَلَى شَرِيَعَةٍ مِنَ الْأَمْرِ Which means in English, that thereafter, O Muhammad, we put you on a straight path, sharia, a straight way. When we talk about it in, 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 in the, 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 the sense of Islamic law, Sharia means everything, and this is where I need you to pay attention. Because there's two parts to the definition. Everything that was revealed to Muhammad is called Sharia. This is one part. The other part which represents what's called Sharia, which even many Muslims have trouble understanding because of a number of issues, are those, uh, that body of law which was uh, brought together and produced and articulated by legal scholars over time. So number one, we have revelation. And number two, we have man's attempt and women's attempt to articulate God's law to people. And both represent what's called sharia. Sharia. Now, if we're talking about percentage, and this is very profound for us in America, percentage-wise... 5% of Sharia comes from what has been revealed to Muhammad. 5%. According to the most profound legal scholars in the Muslim world, some of whom I was blessed to study with, 5% of Sharia law is what's called qat'iyat, which means absolutely unequivocally fixed. It doesn't change. Examples of that will be prayer, five daily prayers. Most of the ritual acts of worship that Muslims do fall under this fixed paradigm. What's called qat'iyat. It doesn't change. The 95%, what's left, changes according to certain paradigms, or certain parameters, excuse me, taught to us by the Qur'an itself and through the legislative uh, uh, um, output of the Prophet and his students, his companions, his homeboys, for those of you who are Muslims. They're not his companions. Companions like Chaucer, they were his G's. They had his back. Yeah. Because we romanticized 
even our history so much that we tend not even to be able to relate to it anymore. Like inna in the Quran, inna is an Arabic word which means surely. You know, not surely, not surely, but surely. But when you explain that to Muslim youth, you say, surely God has promised. Like, surely. Then you say, for real, God has promised. Then they understand. Yeah. We have this problem. We have this problem that we have distanced ourselves from the organic nature of religion. And I'm not just saying this applies to Muslims, because Christopher Hedges talks about this also. We've romanticized it to the point that we're not even able to relate to it as sinners anymore. It's very intimidating. So 95% comes from the minds of judges. What are called fuqaha. And fuqaha is a plural of faqih. Faqih is someone who understands. And when we talk about that 95% of law that changes, ritual law, acts of worship, that changes over time, changes according to certain parameters, uh, our scholars of Islamic law teach us that that changes according to the following. And I'll give you a few, not all of them because of time and also because of difficulty. Number one is culture. That culture can affect law. That culture can affect how a Muslim carries themselves. So for example, I have not been back to Oklahoma really in two years because I live on the West Coast. Orange County men dress very differently than men in Oklahoma. You know, not to disrespect anyone from Orange County. I never saw skinny jeans until I went to the West Coast, right? And people in the West Coast don't wear big cowboy hats with feathers. So I went, I landed the night, I landed to visit my parents in Oklahoma, and I went to this restaurant called Cattleman's Cafe. Definitely you're not going to find that in Orange County, Cattleman's Cafe. I went in there, and everybody has big cowboy hats on. I said, wow, you know, I haven't seen this much marble-esque, you know, masculinity in years. And then I started thinking also how Muslims wear the kufi, you know, this kufi. That Muslims wear this hat. If you ever saw, you know, the show on HBO about the prisoners, the Muslim guy always used to wear that scully hat, right? So then I started thinking, how would that, you know, how would it be to introduce this, for example, this kufi or this cowboy hat into a place called Shubra in Egypt? Yeah. If everybody started walking around Egypt with these big cowboy hats on, Egyptians would flip out, right? They'd probably ask you for an autograph, you know, you knew John Wayne or something, you know, Don Wayne. So the opposite also applies. That what would happen? If we come to America and we start to dress in certain cultural dress that people don't know, people don't understand. So that's why Islam does not prescribe dress in a general sense. You're not going to go to any classical book of Islamic law and find a Pakistani shawar kameez with the MC Hammer pants or the, the, Arab, the Arab, you know, long flowing robes. You're not going to find under that in any book of fiqh that this is Islamic dress. But what you're going to find are general, general rules for dress. That a man should cover certain parts of his body, that a woman should cover certain parts of her body. How they do it is defined by culture. And because of that, one of the five major axioms of Sharia that are agreed upon by all, all legal schools in Islamic history is that custom, custom can lay precedence to law. Al-Urfu Muhkam. And because of that, Islam spread. And you find the Malaysians have an Islam, the Africans have an Islam. If you go to Saudi Arabia, no disrespect to anyone from Saudi Arabia, and you want to study with a teacher, you go to his house, you'll never see his wife. You'll never see his wife. That's their custom. They're from a Bedouin custom. But when you go to West Africa, Senegal, you know who answers the door? His wife. He's not home. His wife said, come on in, chill. 
I'll make some tea for you. Sit down. Enjoy yourself. Now, if you've been studying in the Gulf for a long time, you're going to be kind of like, well, I don't really know. Can I come in your house? Just because Islam did not enforce these customs on people. And we'll talk about how this plays out into the psyche of a convert like myself, who when you go into a mosque as a white American, you don't really find, or a white American from the hood, you don't really find that culture being represented in the masjid, in the mosque. So you're empty internally. So what happens is you cling to different cultures to authenticate your Islam. And that's why a lot of converts get messed up. I met a brother, one from Bed-Stuy, Marcy Ave actually, in Brooklyn. That brother spoke English, Arabic, worse than Arabs. No offense to any Arabs. I said, what's up, man, what's happening? He's like, well, uh, you know, I understand it. I said, what? Where are you from, man? So I'm from Marcy Avenue. Marcy Avenue? He don't talk like this. Jay-Z doesn't talk like that. Mr. Beyonce doesn't talk like that. But what happens is, and we'll talk about this later on, when you come into Islam, and you don't find, you know, you'll find biryani in the mosque, you'll find bakhlava, but you ain't finding hamburgers and cheese, and pot roast, and mashed potatoes, and some halal greens. So what happens is, and this is a very, very real phenomenon that needs to be looked into, you find cultural emptiness. As an imam in North America, in San Francisco, an African-American brother, dear friend of mine, lives in L.A., the drive from L.A. to San Francisco could be like five to eight hours. So this brother kept calling me. I want to meet you. 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 I said, fine, but you're going to drive all the way from L.A.? Yeah? He's like, yeah, I got to talk to you. So he drove all the way from L.A. to San Francisco. And you know what he told me? Man, let's just kick it like Americans, man. I just want to kick it. Let's play some Xbox. Let's go watch the Raiders. I ain't watching the Raiders game, man. You know, let's go, let's go like eat catfish and you know, just get down. And I said, You came all the way from LA for this? He said, Ahi, I'm lonely. I'm lonely in the community. And this is not to attack Muslims or to say that Islam is a false religion, but this is a social reality that we need to understand exists that converts are lonely. They're not lonely because of religion, they're lonely because of culture. They're lonely because of culture. So many of them, when they become Muslim, and I went through this, and I'll be the first to plead, not the fifth, to plead guilty when they become Muslims. They find a cultural vacuum. And they forget that Islam is not concerned about this kind of stuff. As one great Muslim theorist said, if Islam is not concerned about the, cl the clothes that people wear. Man. Islam is concerned about the condition of their hearts, the state of their faith. But because that emptiness exists, we replace it by adopting other cultural orientations. And that's very problematic because then we go back to the hood. I remember when I wore that white robe, the first time I wore the white robe, man, my friends were like, oh my goodness gracious, you got a dashiki on or something, man. And then I went home and my father was like, we got to talk, right? I didn't raise my boy to wear no sheep. And I was like, but you know, it's just like this Arab dress made in China. It's all good, though. It's like Islam dress. And my father, being a professor of, a, of, of European history, was like, there's no Islam dress, man. What are you talking about? Muslims dress like this. Muslims dress like that. Muslims dress like this. Now, for certain Muslims, especially those Muslims who might come from certain areas in America, wearing Islamic dress is very important for them. You can flip the paradigm. For example, the west side of Chicago, uh, where I visited the brothers in Masjid Dawah, because a lot of those brothers used to be gang members. 
from the vice lords, or from folk. So by wearing Islamic dress, they distinguish themselves in the community that they're not part of the criminal element. So it takes on different meaning, different symbology. But in general, Islam is not asking us how to dress, telling us what to wear. It's giving us guidelines, what to cover, what to look after in general, but not in specifics. And this is because the custom shapes the ruling. And that's why in the Qur'an, the Qur'an is a book of universals. And we have to understand this. And this is very similar to the Constitution of the United States. That the Constitution is, is, a, is a doctrine of universals. And it took, and still we are trying to get it right. The Qur'an laid down universals for us, gave us the Prophet to teach us the specifics of those universals. But things that came after the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, Muslims are still in some ways struggling to get it right. And this does not affect our faith, our belief in God, our belief in the Prophet, but our practice of Islam. So for example, in the Qur'an, it talks about family relationships. It doesn't give into specifics. It tells men, That means live with your wife. And ma'ruf has two meanings here. And I want you to understand this. Ma'ruf means what's known to be good. And the scholars of one of the great legal schools of Islam, the Hanafis, said that what, what's good here means what's good religiously, and also what's good according to the society that doesn't contradict any of the fundamentals of religion. But what he didn't say in the Qur'an is, He didn't say in the Qur'an, if you love her, go and buy some chocolate. If that was in the Qur'an, let's say hypothetically, what would you do if your wife was allergic to chocolate? You'll be in big trouble. So it gave a universal, be good to your family. Be good religiously, but then allow your custom, according to the majority of jurists, to shade how you express your love for your wife. And that's why in America till now, young brothers and sisters, what is the, one of the biggest problems we have is getting what? You know what it is, getting what? Married. Getting married. Because why? We are still trying to take constructs from overseas and apply it here and get married and it doesn't work. You grew up on friends. You didn't grow up watching uh, Amr Diab and Adil Iman on the Tilvez Hinak. You grew up watching friends. Let's hope not, but you might have. Or everybody hates Chris. But whatever you were raised on culturally is very different than what exists overseas. And that's why sometimes young Muslims get shocked when their parents tell them the only person you can marry is someone from your village. Our village is population 20. I'm in America. Who am I supposed to marry? Right? But that's why we find sometimes the clash in social issues in the Muslim community because we haven't learned to appreciate custom and the role that custom plays in guiding most, as Imam Suyuti mentioned, great scholar of Islamic law, most of the rulings of Islam are shaded by the custom which people, which people live in. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, set this example as an as a explainer of Islamic law. So when people would come to him, and they would have strange customs, they might even negate certain customs that were Islamic. For example, the most profound example is a sound narration that a man came into the, 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 the mosque of the Prophet, which is the second holiest place in Islam, and he urinated in his mosque. I don't know how many of us here right now, whether it's your church on Sunday or Wednesday night, or the mosque on Friday, don't let anyone come and take a dump in our holy place of worship. It ain't going to happen. But this man, 
That's what he does. That's his culture. He comes from a tribe. When they got to go, they got to go. When it's time to take care of business, it's time to take care of business. So he walks in the prophet's masjid, and he's like, I got to take care of business. In the mosque, he uses the restroom. Of course, some of the prophet's companions were like, we finna roll this fool up, man. Excuse me, when to university. We're going to make him pay. Then the prophet, peace be upon him, tells them, leave him alone. Let him finish. Let him finish. That's what he knows, man. That's, his, that's who he is. Then when he finished, he said a famous supplication. He said, oh Allah, oh God, have mercy upon me and Muhammad, none of these other bombs. Then the prophet told him, you took something big, God's mercy, and you made it very small. He teaches him how to be soft. But he takes into consideration his custom. He used to speak the language of the Arabs. They have different dialects. So when he would meet them, he would speak their different languages. When they would ask him certain questions, he would answer in a way that's according to their custom. Because we believe that custom is guided by one major principle found in Islamic law. And that is that the origin of things is permissible and less explicitly proven to be forbidden. Explicitly proven. Which means it has to come from the five percentile. Things which are fixed. Absolutely fixed. The second consideration that Islamic law takes into account are people. And we have a very profound axiom in Islamic law that says orders are based on ability. Al-amr mabniya al-istita'a. Orders are based on ability. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, he said, وَمَا أَمَرْتُكُمْ بِهِ فَأْتُوا مِنْهُمَ اسْتَطَعْتُمْ Which means, what I told you to do, what I've ordered you to do as a Prophet, do it as best you can. And that's why every law in Sharia comes with two important components. What's called the azima and the Ruchas. Azim, azima means those people who are able to perform it in perfect health, like prayer for example, have to do so. The Ruchas literally means licenses. People that cannot perform certain actions are exempted from those actions. Or the action is changed in a way that makes it, it facilitates the process for them. And that's why we have uh, uh, an axiom in Islamic law that says hardship makes things easy. And the scholars said hardship are the following, sickness. So the school that I was trained in, the legal school called the Maliki school, we allow the person who's sick to join their prayers. As do the Hanbali school. Why? Because of sickness. Because in the Quran, it says for those who are sick, they don't have to fast. <laughs> number two, if something is in abundance, its number is such that people cannot perform it. So for example, in Islam, the woman who, who's on her menses, she doesn't have to pray, she doesn't have to fast. But out of the two, which one does she have to make up? Her fasting, because it's only once a day. But can you imagine, my Muslim sisters, if, let's say that you, you know, you're on your menses for quite a, quite a while, then suddenly you get off your menses before you can do anything, you have to make up like 85 prayers. So Islam removes that, not because you're evil, or because you're sick, but because that's a hardship on the person. So what's called al-kafra, something that exists in such quantity that it will be hard on people to perform. Number two, al-qillah, something that's so insignificant. So for example, in, in Islam, we believe we should be pure when we pray. If we use the restroom, we wash ourselves. We clean ourselves when we pray. You know, when a baby uses the restroom, what do you do? You get out the water. Or get out some wet ones. Right? You take care of business. 
So Islam also encourages us to be clean. But the scholar said, if someone, for example, neglected or forgot or wasn't aware that there was a small amount of filth on their clothes or their person, their worship is accepted. Why? Because it's insignificant. Something called al-qillah. The fourth is traveling. So the traveler is allowed to join the prayers. The traveler is allowed to break their fast. The fifth is fear. And that's why the Maliki school, we allow the one who's scared that they'll lose their job not to go to the Friday prayer. Because of fear that they will lose their job. But now you go to Sheikh Wiki Ibn Yahu Ibn Gugu. And this is the problem of postmodernity. That now there is no... Because Muslims love to say, we don't have a priest class. We don't have a priest class, but we do have scholarship. But this, we don't have a priest class, we don't have a priest class, has led to Chicken George. I don't know if some of you know what Chicken George is. The rooster with no head. Well, now I can go to YouTube, I see a guy with a big beard and a turban, he must know something. He, he, could, he could be, he, he might not know anything at all. But because of how he looks, I'm going to listen to him. Or just because someone's on the internet, we think, wow, this person must have knowledge. Why? They're on the internet. Man, anyone in their mama can be on the internet. But if you're taking your religion from the internet, you got to ask yourself some serious questions about your religion. Right? But what happens is we go and read fatwa. Oh, I read this religious verdict here. and this, So this must be right. But we're not trained in Islamic law to understand the application of sharia within the framework of America. And that's why we have some crazy fatwa coming to our country. That unfortunately, even those who've converted and know better up here will regurgitate. Regurgitate. But fear. And I remember there was a brother once who he was about to lose his job because he wanted to pray the Friday prayer. And he went to the mosque and he found Sheikh Google. And of course, you know what Sheikh Google told that brother? Ah, quit your job, man. God will take care of you. Ah, you and your five kids. He came to me. I said, listen, brother, don't quit your job, man. You're excused in this situation until you find another job. He told me, you know what, Suhaib, I don't believe you because that's too easy. That's how we've conditioned ourselves because of our lack of knowledge. And the Arabs say, Adamul Ma'rifa Yufidu Shidda. The absence of knowing makes things hard on people. And I'll be honest with you that as a Muslim community, we are faced with a profound challenge that we have people from the right and certain communities which don't really like us. They are more educated on Islam from false sources then we are as a community on the correct sources. And this is a profound challenge. That people now are going to come to you and say, your religion is telling you to kill me. Your religion is telling you to be a second column in America. Sudden jihad syndrome, yo. You got the flu shot, but you, did you get the sudden jihad syndrome shot? And a Muslim who's not literate, not scholarship, literate of the issues, is not going to be able to talk about these things. And I've been in gatherings with a rabbi who knew more about the issues than a Muslim who was there speaking about Islam. He defended us better than we could defend ourselves. So now the things I'm talking to you about, I never heard this before. Yeah, because you got to study. Gain some literacy of your religion. Especially when you see people speaking about your religion in a way that you know is not correct. So fear. Fear of losing your life. Fear of losing what? Your money. And fear for your loved ones. And that's why the scholars of Islamic law, they said what? That if you are taking care of the elderly, or your friends, or a loved one, 
and you fear that if you leave them to go to observe some of the obligatory acts of Islam, you are excused, you can perform those obligatory acts with that sick person, in the same room as that person, so that you can look after them. So what does that tell you now about a religion that came to kill people? When even you're excused from the major obligations to be a caregiver in the name of what? Fear for them, not even fear for yourself. Yourself. So those are some what is called al-mushaqqa, hardships, which Islam takes into consideration when dealing with law, when dealing with this evil term, sharia. Right? As some people look say, sharia. Right? Sharia. So, Islam takes into consideration also people. And we find some amazing examples of, of this in the Qur'an. In the 49th chapter of the Qur'an, two of the most important companions of the Prophet, named Abu Bakr, Abu Bakr means father of Bakr, and one named Umar, Umar, or Umar. They raised their voice in front of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, they started going at it. They got into one of the arguments, right? They got into a big argument. And the verse came and said, don't raise your voice in front of the Prophet, you two. You two know better. And actually, the threat to them is very severe. It says, That your deeds are going to be canceled unless you stop this. Omar was so scared that after this verse came, anytime he saw the Prophet, he would say, Ya Rabbi, oh Muhammad, oh Muhammad. He was scared. The Prophet said, it's not little, man, raise your voice. In the same chapter, the 49th chapter, a group of Bedouins, you know, from the hood, right? They came to Medina, not from the hood, from the desert. They came from Medina, Jaldina Horni. They came from Medina. They showed up. They, they went behind the Prophet's apartment, which was next to the mosque, and they started going, Hey, Muhammad, what's up, man? Come outside. God, talk to you. This is really how it comes across in Arabic. If you watch those companion shows in the Arab countries, it's not like that. Because they robotized them. Oh, Muhammad. We know it's 3 o'clock in the morning. We apologize for disturbing you. You think you could come out momentarily so we could ask you a few questions. But in Arabic, that's not what it is. In Arabic, it's like, yo, B, come outside. We're going to holler at you. We just came from the desert. Eight hours on a camel. That's actually how it comes across in Arabic. It's a little rough. If you're from the country, it's like, you know, pardon me, come on out. You know, whatever. But it has that feel to it. Right? Well, it's not been chasserized. But in chasserizing the language of Arabic and English, what we've done is push our young people away from it. Don't even understand it. Yusuf Ali, you need a GPS for that joint. It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. So what happens is, you have a community that when you say, in the means for real, they say, oh, okay, now I understand. Yeah, now I get it. Surely, that didn't make no sense. Though. That comma, I was getting that. So here, when they came to him, these buck wild cats from the desert, on their camels with some trues involved and booty on the back. They roll up and they say what? With a spoiler, <laughs> come on out. And Allah says to these Bedouin Arabs who did the same thing that those two companions did earlier that God told them, I'm going to cancel your deeds and they got spooked. What does God say to these Arab guys who just became Muslim, who don't know much? Allah says, Wallahu ghafur rahim. Stop it, but God is forgiving and merciful. He deals with people differently according to their conditions and their states. In Islamic theology, it is not considered acceptable to ask, can God do something? Because we believe that God can do whatever He wants. But in the fifth chapter of the Quran, 
we find the story of Jesus and his disciples, his apostles. And we find that they ask him, can your Lord send a table from the heavens? This question, if you go to any kind of engineered book of theology, like, you know, just the rules of theology in Islam, they'll say one of the questions which you should never ask, in the sense of without having proper etiquette, is can God do something? Because God is the Alpha, the Omega, the Awwal, and the Akhir, also in Islam. So he says, Can your Lord send a table from the heavens? Here, Muslim uh, scholars got into a big discussion. These are the apostles of Christ, peace be upon him. How, how could like, they ask him this type of question? And his response is not, You're not Muslim anymore, or you're out of Islam. Right? His response was, Be dutiful to God if you truly believe him, in Him. Imam al-Qurtubi was a scholar from Spain. And actually, he, in his memoirs, he writes about being kicked out of Spain. And he said, the Spanish were pointing at me and saying, Diablo, Diablo. He didn't know what Diablo meant. Diablo means devil. <laughs> so he said, I ran out of Qurtuba with my books, and they were yelling, Diablo, Diablo, Diablo. And he died in Egypt. But he says, commenting on this verse, and he was a genius, a brilliant person. He said, how on earth could a prophet... And Jesus Christ is one of the greatest prophets of Islam and our theology, without disrespecting my Christian brothers and sisters, just making a point here, that he said to them, you're, you know, you should be dutiful to God. He didn't say to them, you're astray, you left the minhaj. We know Muslims, we love to say someone's off the minhaj. Or you're no longer orthodox. But he didn't say that. And Qurtubi, which means Cordoba, Qurtubi, he said the reason that he said that is because they just became Muslims. They hadn't had a chance to learn all the nuances of theology, man. They just entered into Islam. And that's why if you look at the books of fiqh, and you look at the books of Islamic law, you find always exceptions for those who just became Muslim, those who just accepted Islam, those who entered into Islam. A second consideration is knowledge itself. And we know that Muslims are very strict monotheists, as we say. We don't have, if you've been to a mosque, we don't have any images, we don't have statues. God doesn't have a color in Islam. But we find something, and he's not the moon god, prior to certain, you know, some people who said this. We don't worship the moon. So, we find in the seven chapters of the Quran, something remarkable, the story of Moses. A very profound story. And Moses is the most mentioned prophet in the Quran. Out of all of the prophets. And we find that his people were expelled, the exodus, from Egypt, from Kafr Sheikh, they left Egypt, and after they got out of Egypt and escaped, and after Manna and Salwa were sent from the heavens, they asked Moses something very profound. They said, Which means in Arabic, Can you make for us Moses? Can you imagine? Peace be upon him. Can you make for us idols? Just like the Pharaonic people had idols. We know that the first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods. Before me, the Mosaic law is based on the foundation of the unity of God and His oneness, that He has no likeness. Here the followers of Moses in the Qur'an are saying, can you make for us idols? The response of Moses is profound, and we actually take a point of sharia from his response. He says, he says to them, إِنَّكُمْ قَوْمٌ تَجْهَلُونَ He said, you are ignorant people. He didn't say you are not Muslim or you are out of you know, you're not from my followers, or you're not believers anymore. 
Even though they ask for idols, and idolatry is the, the, great, the most grievous sin in Islam. So the scholars said, why? Because they didn't know yet. They hadn't learned. They hadn't understood things. So Islam takes into consideration people. Uh, a great scholar of prophetic narrations, his name is Abu Dawood. He's from Central, he was from Russia now. In his collection, he mentions an important antidote that happened in the time of the Prophet, which is authentic. That he was sitting with his companions in the month of Ramadan, the month which we fast, 29 or 30 days, from dawn to sunset, not the whole day. I remember when I became Muslim, and they told me, you got to fast for 30 days. I said, I don't know about that. You know, I'm down with everything. I can pray five times a day, but I ain't fasting for 30 days, man. I'm a big guy. I got to have that barbecue brisket, man. And they basically said, no, no, from dawn to sunset. I said, okay, I think I can handle that right there. But not all day. And y'all are so big anyways. We're trying 30 days fasting. But anyways, he mentions that in this gathering, a man comes to, to, to the prophet Muhammad and says, can I kiss my wife while I'm fasting? Because we know that while we fast, we don't have any sexual relationships with our spouses. It breaks the fast. So the prophet told him, yes, you can kiss your wife. Go ahead, no problem. Then, in the same gathering, another man comes and says, can I kiss my wife while I'm fasting? The prophet says, nah, nope, you can't. So the companions, they ask him, you know, you have two answers here. Like, what's, what's going on? So to summarize, without offending anyone, the first man was a Viagra candidate, man. He was old. He's not, you're not worried about him. He's not going to, you know, lose it if he kisses his wife. Right? Right? Four players in play. You know what I'm saying? No disrespect to anyone here. But I keep it real. That's why I'm not an imam really anywhere. Then secondly, secondly, I'm looking for And secondly, the next guy was a young man. He's a walking red bull of hormones. Right? If he kisses his wife, things might happen. Although it's humorous, it shows you, again, this principle comes into play of what? Keeping into consideration people. An organic faith. Not a faith based on, like, simple rules. Sharia is just rules. Muslims are going to come to America and apply these rules, take over, put the flag of Islam in the White House, turn to the greenhouse. This is all garbage, man. And the Catholics, those of you who are Catholics, experienced it in the past in America. You know, that you're working for the Pope. So, here we see it takes into consideration what? The people. Another important point to note in Islamic history is that if something is not explicitly found in Quran and Sunnah, and agreed upon in its application, it is not considered something fixed as a religious principle. And again, what's the percentage of those things that I said earlier? 5%. One of the common themes we hear is something called Dar Islam and Dar Al Harb, which means the lands of Islam and the lands of war. If you watch Fox News, you hear this about 20 times a day. But that's another story. So, the land of Islam and the land of war. And that somehow Muslims view the world as like the lands of Islam, the lands of war. And, and then what you find is people tend to take the worst examples of Muslim, Muslim scholarship, which are considered, by the way, strange amongst the majority of Muslim scholars throughout the time. And they say, you know, in Daro, the land of war, which means the land where Muslims are not ruling, Muslims can do whatever they want. They're not bound by any law. They're basically like mercenaries. And then people say, America? They'll say, America is the land of war. 
and Muslims here are potentially fifth column, just watch 24 sleeper cell or, you know, the siege. And that's what's going to happen. Let me, let me explain something quickly, that the concept of Dara Islam and Dara Harb, even for Muslims, is not found in the Qur'an, it's not found in the Sunnah. So consequently, it's not from that 5%. So the question comes now, when we hear things, and I, I talk to Muslims about this too, sometimes Christian brothers and sisters, Muslims will come to me and be like, hey man, I found this in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians. I'm like, look man, shut the Bible, man. Why? Because you're not, you're not a scholar of the Bible. No one's going to take you seriously. And they're going to have a thousand different ways to explain that you're wrong here. And out of respect for another religion, take the time to learn it from the people of that religion. Not from those who are fighting each other and arguing all the time and going at each other. I'm not going to learn about the Republican Party from John Stewart. I'm not going to learn about Obama's health care plan from Glenn Beck. Right? Hopefully not. I'm going to take the time, not Wikipedia, to investigate and understand. We should also respect each other's religion enough to do that. And that's why for us as Muslims in the Qur'an, we made a profound error after 9-11. When we said, you need to learn about Islam. You need to learn about Islam. You need to learn about Islam. If you only learned about Islam, you will like Islam. This is not what the Qur'an teaches us. Actually, Allah says in the Qur'an, لِتَعَارَفُوا Which is تَفَاعُوا Which means, you need to learn about each other. That you both engage in understanding your reality. How do you think African Americans feel if they see the Muslim community say the Muslims came to America in 1960 when three million people that were brought over here were Muslim? That the Haitian riots in the 19th century were led by Muslims. So if we don't understand and know each other, we'll, we'll tend to have this bigoted feel the same thing applies now to this concept of Dar islam and Dar harb I bet if you went to most Muslims and asked him, so are you Dar islam or are you Dar harb Like, look, I'm a Democrat. Shoot. Dar islam Dar harb Tea Party. You know. Chai. Chai Pilo. Right? <laughs> Pakistani Tea Party. With some milk in it. Right? That's what we'd say. But you hear this all the time. And what you should honestly ask yourself, because you're going to come to a conclusion about a people that make up 4 to 7 million people in America. And if you're going to come to a conclusion, just like I tell Muslims overseas, man, all white American women ain't Pamela Anderson. They're not. Like, wallahi. I'm like, wallahi, they're not. By God, they're not. They're like, damn. No, 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 go there, man. Right? But that, that's a problem. And Islam encourages us to engage in understanding each other, man. To, to, to work to know each other. So if I'm going to hear something called Dar Islam and Dar Harb, land of war, land of Islam, and this allows Muslims to basically go crazy in America, develop sudden jihad syndrome, and flip out. Before I come to that conclusion, man, I should, I should research that first. Because I might become bigoted towards the people. And the heart has doors. Our scholars tell us the heart has doors. One of the doors to the heart is the mind. What we put in our mind affects our spiritual state. We believe this. So, the concept of the land of war and the land of Islam is not found in Quran and Sunnah. It's found in the third century after the death of the Prophet. 300 years! Actually, 150 years, excuse me, after his death. In the time of one of the Muslim leaders, when he asked a great scholar of Islam named Ash-Shaybani, Ash-Shaybani, he asked him, Sifthana ayyamana. He said, Explain to us 
these days of ours, like the time that we're in. What he means is politically. And at that time, if you look at history, the Muslim world was filled with civil war and strife, and also there were invasions coming from Rome and other places. The Muslim world was like bugging out, basically. So what he said was, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, O leader of the believers, O leader of the Muslims, Daruna dar islam daruhum harb. These lands are the lands of Islam that you rule, and the lands outside of your land are the lands of war. Shaybani is equivalent to Huntington in his theory of the clash of civilizations. What Shaybani gave was a political theory. He didn't give something found in Revelation. He didn't give something found in Sunnah. He gave something from his understanding as a political scientist who lived 150 years after Muhammad. That's his description of what he saw. And many Muslims were like, what? What? Yes. And after him came someone named Ashafi. And to show you that this is not from that five percentile, Shafi tinkers with the theory of Shaybani. And says, you know what? It's not right. This dichotomy is, is too strict. Because there are enemies that we have who we're not at war with them. So not really our enemies. We have treaties. So he divides the world into three. The lands of Islam, the lands of war, and the lands of treaties. Now for the next three or four hundred, five hundred, six hundred years, Muslim scholars developed a legal code under that 95 percentile that dealt with this uh, 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 designation of a shafi. And they clearly said, for lands where Muslims have contracts and treaties with, they are to abide by the laws of those lands, even if the leadership is non-Muslim. This is important as we continue. At that time was the time of the Crusades. You find even someone like Al-Maqdisi, who is from Al-Quds in Palestine. He writes in his famous book, Al-Mughni, about the Muslim who goes into the land of the Crusaders. Is that Muslim obliged to live according to the laws of that land? Or is he just able to go like, you know, straight WWE on folks? Right? Saw 3D or something. Don't see that. So, I didn't see it. Just ten religious advice. So, he says in his answer, and the majority of scholars agreed with him, that for a Muslim who enters the lands, even of people that we do not have treaties with, the crusaders, he is not to harm their people. He is not to kill them. He is not to maim them. He is not to steal from them. He is to honor them. And then he quotes a statement of the prophet, peace be upon him, that says, someone who does this will go to hellfire. Someone who goes to a people and tricks them into thinking that he's safe and secure and he will not harm them, even in this situation, is someone from the people of hell. And this hadith is sahih. And this statement of the Prophet is authentic. And this is the understanding of al-Maqdisi. Imam Maqdisi is not like us Muslims. Imam Maqdisi is like a baller, man. Like he's on another, excuse me, he's a profound erudite scholar. He's an incredible person. Him lies more than one million hadith. One million traditions of the Prophet. He's a giant in Islamic law. Ibn Taymiyyah comes after him, one of the great scholars of the Hanbali school, and says the same thing. Al-Qarafi, the Maliki, says the same thing. So on and so forth. So if that's the state of the land that Muslims were having absolute military warfare with, what would we say about lands that they had treaties with? was even more strict in this application of ethics and morality. At least theoretically. I'm not responsible for what people do. Physically, I can denounce that, but I can say this is what it said. As time continued the next five, six hundred years, legal scholars continued to engage this definition of Imam Shafi, and they became a little bit upset. 
The reason they became upset is they said the following. Ashashi. His name is Ashashi. He was a Hanafi scholar. Hanafi is a right of Islamic law. He said, you know, this designation of the land of war and the land of Islam, it's not found in Quran. It's not found in the statements of the Prophet. This is a human construct. And he said, it's a very dangerous construct because it makes people immediately your enemies. And they might not be your enemies. So then he changes this definition. And he says, the land where Muslims live and the land where Muslims don't live. Not the land of war and the land of Islam. The land of where people have become Muslim, live as Muslims, practice Islam, and the lands where people don't. Without mentioning fighting, killing, maiming. And now we find, except for one school of Islamic law, the majority of jurists take the position that you're not allowed to fight and kill anyone because of their faith. And I'm telling you now, this is the majority. Only one school out of four took this opinion, and even they changed later on. Why? Because of that 95 percentile, the dynamics of law. Law changes, religious law changes. Now, this is almost 800 years ago, 700 years ago, that this happened, right? And now you might ask me, then how do you explain these cats who come into America and do some crazy stuff? Number one, if you look at the scholars they follow, you'll find the scholars that they follow are quoted who existed before the time of Shashi. And this is important to note. That they are quoting scholars, and even those scholars they're quoting incorrectly, who existed before the time where the majority of Islamic jurists changed this definition and moved into a different understanding of the world. And that's why we stress scholarship. Don't go to Sheikh Wiki, man. Sheikh Wiki is a problem. And that's why 30 or 40 years ago, a great Tunisian scholar said, you shouldn't even go to one person anymore. Because the nature of the world is moving so fast that if you want a real answer, you should go to a body of scholars, like 60 or 70 women and men who are scholars of Islam who can articulate an answer for you that gives you almost like a majority, if you will. And that's why if we look at most of the major bodies of Islamic law in the world, from Mecca, in Jeddah, in Cairo, Egypt, in Pakistan, in Malaysia, all of them unequivocally, before 9-11, denounced terrorism, and after 9-11, did, so did it even with greater rigor. Unfortunately, I have to be honest, many of it wasn't translated into English, and that's our fault as a community. But even in America, the idea that religious scholars did not step up to the plate and denounce 9-11, on 9-12-01, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf stood in front of the White House with George Bush, and what did he denounce? Terrorism. So we find that over the last six to seven hundred years, a change in definition. And many of our, uh, 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 the extremists in the Muslim community are quoting scholars who existed before that shift took place. And this is important to understand. And it shows you the danger of not being trained Brothers, fiqh sunnah does not give you malaka. Fiqh sunnah gives you literacy, but not scholarship. After these people came a very interesting scholar named Amawudi, who was a Shafi scholar. There are four schools of Islamic law. One of them is the Shafi school. And it's interesting that he's a Shafi, because as I said earlier, Imam al-Shafi was one of those who tinkered with this definition. Mawrudi said something very profound. He said, all of these are human constructs which dealt with political realities that don't exist. Especially now with the, the birth of the nation state, which didn't exist in borders and citizenry. 
So what did he lay out? He laid out a platform that caused most, I would say about 85% of contemporary jurists and those who I worked with in Egypt, some of the most profound, Dr. Adi Juma, for example, legal minds in the world, who I don't agree with everything they say. And I'm not saying everything they say is right. But I'm going to give you this as an example. Who said wherever a Muslim is able to pray and fast and stay away from what is forbidden religiously, like alcohol, going to strip bars, smoking weed, and killing people, that place becomes his land of Islam. That place becomes where he can practice his faith, his religion. Now, if we were to apply that definition to a country like Tunisia, with no disrespect to any Tunisians, would America be a Tunisian's daughter Islam or Tunisia? If you're an American Muslim citizen, you can't even wear the cover and scarf in, in, in Tunisia. You can't even go to pray in the mosque. Whereas in America, you can do all of those things. So where is the land of Islam? But when we talk about this, we get upset and angry. Let's not be emotional. Let's think. Now back to an American Muslim. I would say that as American Muslims, we struggle with a voice which does not have many of the, as I mentioned earlier, problems that come with coming to America. And I don't mean this in a bad way at all. Not that I'm better than you. I think that both communities have to serve each other. But for example, in the American Muslim community, we don't have a wall in the back of the mosque that separates the men from the women, in general. The reason is because when our mother, at least me, when I was in the country in Oklahoma, when my mother wanted to punish me, where would she put me? Where would she put my face? Against the wall. So if we have American women becoming Muslim, the last thing that we want them to do is to have to look at a wall. Where did the wall come from? The wall came from the second century because there was a massive problem in a certain area where Jews reacted and said, you know what, we can't have prostitution in the mosque. I'm sorry to say it like that. We've got to put a wall up. Now, do we have prostitution in the mosque in America? We have red light districts. Those don't exist in the mosque. So there's no need for that in many communities, especially those of us who culturally are not used to that. I'm not used to that. We tend to say our sermons in English. Whereas in some communities, there's still a debate, should the sermon be in Arabic or in English? I'd say this is a minority now, but it still exists. Recently, I went to a mosque, and the guy told me, you have to give the Friday sermon in Arabic. I told him, how many people here understand Arabic? He said, they're all from Pakistan. I said, why are we going to talk in Arabic then? I said, muji urdu atihe, satta Yeah. Then he told me, he told me, yeah, even though you, you're Gurasab and you speak a little Urdu, you still have to give it in Arabic. So when I gave the sermon, what I noticed is that they have an English sermon in the beginning and then an Arabic sermon at the end, with all respect to these people. And the English sermon, there was no one there, just the old people. Very similar to maybe what I experienced in the Christian church. A lot of old people, right? Headed out on the right way, you know what I'm saying? So I was giving the sermon, there's all these uncles there. And they're listening, you know. And then the, the actual ritual sermon is about two minutes long in Arabic. Alhamdulillah, ilayna You know, so on and so forth. So then when I sat down to actually start and give the real sermon, suddenly the mosque was packed with everyone under 30 years old. None of them understand Arabic. I gave the two-minute sermon. As fast as they came in, they came out. And I asked the brother, I said, Brother, how many of them understand Arabic, man? said, none of them. I said, then why are you speaking to them a language that they don't understand? And the Quran says, we did not send a messenger except he spoke the language of the people. Another uh, advantage I think we might have, at least in our community, that's a struggle as well, is popular culture. 
that we don't necessarily look at popular culture as being the evil of all evils. Yani, I remember one scholar in, in, in a certain Muslim country called the television Abu Ma'asim, you know, the foundation of sin and evil. I don't think a lot of us who converted to Islam have that initial problem. We acquired over time. Fourthly, I think that we struggle to have a voice. Uh, and that we do not necessarily have the financial means that other parts of our community have to be able to position ourselves to have leverage in the community. And to be able to speak on behalf of a large, actually 30%, 7% of American Muslims are white. Uh, I, I don't agree, but they say 24%, I think is much more African American. But definitely white and African American and Latino converts make up well over 50% of American Muslims. But you don't see that. So we, we tend to struggle sometimes with certain cultural aspects as well. I would end in a few points that I would stress for those who are converts to Islam or American Muslims that we need to be careful of. Number one, we should never be, be, be embarrassed of being American. We cannot allow ourselves to feel intimidated by who we are. We have to be critical of America in a constructive fashion. We should speak to power, as Martin Luther King talked about. Religion speaks to power. Religion speaks to unabated power. But we should also be careful that we do not allow something just because it's American to be good in our community. And this is another uh, uh, lean that we find in our community. But religion encourages us to be constructively critical. We find that 47% of children in America born are born to single mothers. Islam is concerned about that. Islam has something to say. The housing crisis, the, the reaction to Katrina, where Muslim youth actually went. There was a Muslim in Houston who get, opened his hotel before the government promised to subsidize it and allow people from Louisiana to stay in his hotel for free. This is where we should be concerned as American Muslims, with things that affect the hood. I met a brother once from New York, in Egypt, where I studied, from, from, from an area in New York. And we started talking. And I said, so what are you going to do when you go back home? And he said, well, you know, we have this problem between the Salafis, and those of you non-Muslims, don't worry about this, it's good you only know about it, between the mystics and the literalists, between the Salafis and the Sufis. He said, my job is to go back in to destroy the Wahhabis. Right, the literalist. He said, my job is to go and theologically destroy the Wahhabis. I said, man, where are you from? He said, I'm from Marcy Avenue. I said, how many people in Marcy Avenue know anything about what you just told me? Your friends, the people that you accepted Islam, who you, your, your boys that you grew up with, people that you used to hang around with, how many of them even know about this stuff? He said, none of them. I said, then what type of benefit are you going to be to New York? He said, you know, I'm glad you told me that. But what happens when we become Muslim, we tend to be blinded by the spectrum of the East. The sun shines from the East. We go to study overseas, and we acquire the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we bring it back. And what happens is we forget who we are, who we have to speak to. And that's why we're not relevant. I'll be honest with you, the immigrant Muslim community has done much more to be relevant to America then the convert community. Because the convert community tends to get caught up in trying to be Eastern. Trying to impress the East. And that's very problematic. As one brother came to me, and I'm saying this with all respect to Mr. Jay-Z. He said, listen, I'm married with five children. My secretary looks like Beyonce. She wants the digits, man. And in Islam, 
it's forbidden to give her the digits. If you know what I mean, I'm not going to elaborate because I'm a man of the cloth. But you understand. He said, when I go to the convert community, the only thing I hear about is how high my pants should be, how long my beard is, what does the rising on the throne mean. I need to be protected from Beyonce. I need a faith that's going to allow me to overcome my spiritual weaknesses. Then all this stuff. So what we find is a convert community who is literate in the problems of the East, profoundly literate in problems that happened amongst Muslim scholars in history, but illiterate in projecting an American Islam to their own people. And that's why we have a problem. And that's why we're not able to speak to the people around us. Because we forgot how to. We forgot how to. So I would say that's a very profound challenge, is to maintain who you are, and to maintain the ability to speak to your people in a way that they understand, irregardless of what other people think about you, to speak to them so that they can relate to you. Why has the nation of Islam, under the, was the nation of Islam, under the leadership of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, able to have more of an impact on American society in what we would consider an, an orthodox set of beliefs than we have as Orthodox Muslims. Because the message of Elijah Muhammad was a message rooted in the crisis of America at his time. And because of that, people respected him. Even if they didn't agree with his theology, even if they considered the nation as being suspect, at the end of the day, many of them said, especially those in certain neighborhoods, we respect these people, man, because they care about us. 57% of America, recently, according to CNN, said, I don't hate Islam, but what does Islam do for me? It's like a Diet Coke. You know, there's no nutritional value. Taste might taste good, sometimes it doesn't. Got a little lemon in there. Now people are saying, we don't hate Muslims. We don't have a problem with Muslims. But you're telling me this about Islam? I don't really see it impacting my life. I don't see it bringing something good to me. So that's something for us to think upon. I'll stop now. It's been a long time. I don't want to overstep my bounds. I appreciate you coming. I'm going to take some questions and answers if you like. Remember, I'm from Oklahoma, so I'm asking no tough questions because I get you. But what I would like to stress about Sharia, and, and I teach a course on this online. It's free. You can find it online, whether you're Muslim or non-Muslim. It doesn't matter. Actually, I have a class of 40 women who are studying to be imams in America to have the literacy of imams so they can serve their communities. 40 women in front of me and 40 women online. What are they studying? What we're talking about now. Contemporary issues. How does Sharia deal with the reality? Yes, ma'am. How do we get signed up for that? That sounds awesome. Yeah, so you can email me at gmail.com. Okay. Uh, I am... Really, are you sure? Right. I-M-A-M-S-U-H-A-I-B. Don't get this out to no one, all right? At gmail.com. Okay, thank you, sir. No, no problem. Every Tuesday. Uh, Monday, Monday Night Live. Sorry. Every Monday. 7 Pacific time. Any questions? Yes? Um, earlier you said that um, in order to have a perspective on issues, it's good to consult a diversity in terms of the scholarship to see if there's a consensus. Is that something that you recommend for scholars to do, or is that something you recommend for individuals to do? Because um, one thing I've often criticized is people um, shop around for different So what she's asking about is a concept of talfiq, 
where you actually, which came out in the 8th century uh, in, in Muslim, uh, in the Hijri calendar, where are you allowed as a common, non-quote-unquote scholarly educated Muslim to research opinions and choose an opinion which you feel is best. According to the majority of scholars, you can. And this is where I have to be careful. That this rhetoric that you can't is not founded in orthodox Islam. Imam Dasuki he says in his book, which is the highest book in the Maliki Madhab, which I studied, he says very clearly that it's permissible for a person to do so. What's not permissible to do, sister, is to mix. For example, the Malikis, you can marry without witnesses. The Hanafis say you can marry without a wali. So what I do is say, no witnesses, no wali, hey. <laughs> right? This is what's forbidden. But for you, as an educated woman, to be able to look, of course, I'm not talking about like zakat on 401ks and you know, this and that. But your basic day-to-day -day practice to look at what the scholars have presented. I'll give an example. I have a high school student. He's Hanafi. He says, listen, when I wash my feet in the sink in high school, brother, 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 you don't know what they say about me. So I said, become Hanbali. So what do you mean? The Hanbalis allow you to wipe on cotton socks, man. Is this now choosing a better opinion to make things easier when God says in the Quran, God wants ease for you. He doesn't want hardship for you. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, Islam is an easy religion. And the Prophet said that the most beloved religion to God is the religion which is compassionate and flexible. So these constructs that we hear on the internet of you can't read on your own and come to a conclusion, these are said by people like Sheikh Wiki. But we have to be very cautious of that. The problem now where it's not allowed is if you were to take an opinion and mix it together and arrive at something that was so easy that it actually destroyed Islam itself, that's the problem. It's called talfiq madmum. So you can do that. Now for you to do that and go and start teaching it, that's a different issue. But in a relationship, and always I encourage people to ask, ask, imams in America are like tech support now. You don't have time. How many imams do you know in America that you can sit down with and just read like thousands of books with like in the old days? So what you have more is like tech support. Is this allowed? Is this allowed? What do you think about this? Can I do this? Can I do that? No, yes, no, yes. Okay, bye. It's like the geek squad, right? We're not going to take too much of your time, right? But if you're able to find people who can teach you from A to Z, that's great if you have time to do so. And Imam Ibn Humman, the great uh, Hanafi jurist, actually he wrote an entire epistle on this about the common person taking into account, looking at opinions that are founded on sound scholarship. If they have the ability, the knowledge to do so, right? Not talking about scholarship. They can do that. And this was the practice of the Prophet's community. The Sahaba, when they used to give answers, sometimes they would go to a person one companion of the Prophet will ask like six or seven different Sahabi and follow an opinion. And no one censored him for this. This is a construct that came in the 7th century in, re in reaction to a number of things. One of them was the spread of Shiaism. That the, that the Sunni Muslim leadership was worried that Shia Islam was going to change Sunni Islam. So they became very restrictive. Another thing that led to that is colonialism. And that's why you find, for example, uh, in Fatwa al-Hindiya, from the scholars of India, you cannot dress like the non-Muslims. You cannot. Why? Because they were under siege. There was colonial experience. But you can't take that now to American apply. Any other questions? Yes. Can you repeat your email address? Yeah, Imam Suhaib Web. I M A M S U H A I B at Gmail. Is it 
Suhaib Web, S U H A B W E B B, sorry. Thank you. At Gmail. Shukriya Bajan. Imam Suhaib Web at Gmail. Any other questions? I'm back. I live in the Bay Area. I live in Northern California, and I work there. I teach. Uh, we have an institute training imams uh, in America, slowly starting. Uh, and I worked there for what's called Muslim American Society. And before that, I went on a tour to the, uh, the death camps in Poland with uh, a Jewish and Muslim group, Dr. Mazama Sadiqi, as well as the State Department. We're trying also to foster some better relationship between the two communities. But primarily teaching, translating, trying to work a Muslim syllabus or curriculum for people like her question earlier. Till now, you don't really have, and I think it's where Zaytuna Institute also is doing a good job in the Maghrib, is that you don't have like a book for someone in high school in America that tells them how to worship. They're reading like classical texts, but classical texts were written that 95 percentile with other cultures and realities in mind. But do you have a book that tells you as an American high school man, like how are you going to make wudu if the bully's going to beat you up? Like what's the ruling on that? What's the fiqh of Facebook? I don't know yet, right? You know, the social network. So that's what I'm doing. Have somebody, memorize, some people memorizing Quran there and so on and so forth. Yeah. Last chance to. Yes? Um, I have a question with regard to meanings. Um, because I don't think Islam is very important to meanings of the head, for example. And uh, yeah, in the, I don't know, I'm not going to say I'm talking about it. But that's the time that after the thing keeps coming back, or I keep hearing from people, like, um, it's not being given freedom. Islam gave us freedom and also men as well restrictions on how they dress. But Islam also recognizes that the human mind is not perfect. So it gives us certain universals to follow which will allow us to live according to what God knows about us, godly lives. Now if a woman doesn't cover, does that mean she's not allowed in the community? She should be beaten up? She should be thrown out of the masjid? No. Because all of us are struggling to submit. All of us have, I have more skeletons in the Smithsonian. He asked about the woman's Scarf, how does that contradict the freedom? Islam believes in freedom, but freedom with certain restrictions given by God Himself. Say. Yes. Um, as, a, as, a, as a Muslim American, I have a few friends that converted to Islam that are American. And so, um, I guess my question is as a, as, a, as a Muslim who, I guess, I'm, I'm indulgent in the culture of Islam because I'm in my to culturalize them basically you need to talk to them about it and explain to them like this is from like Bangladesh culture you're not from Dekka you don't say Kamlachin so you don't need to like learn these cultural nuances and we need to reinforce amongst the convert community that you have your own culture man you have your own families, your own... Most of us who are converts to Islam, the majority of our families are non-Muslim, man. If I go back home, no offense to you, acting like I'm from Dekka, Masjid Kakarel or something, my father's going to go crazy, right? And ultimately, adopting those other cultural norms actually 
defeats our purpose of presenting Islam in a way that doesn't freak people out, man. So you have to talk to them about these kind of things. Dr. Umar Fuq Abdullah, those of you who are writing, he has an interesting article called The Cultural Imperative in Islam at nawawi.org. And that, that's something that people can read and, and, and kind of get a, a nice hit on culture and, and, and the role of culture in Islam. But talk to them about it. I have a question about your, your website. Do you, um, a lot of the, the articles on, on your website are pretty very well written, very inspiring. Do you, what's the process of, of getting articles on that website? Do you, do you have a team <laughs> that works for you? How, how, do you read every article? What, what, what's that process? You're exposing me now. We have, a, we have a staff of 60 people. Uh, so like a small startup company. Um, and we have two uh, women. Uh, one of us named Maria. She's a graduate from UCI. Another, her name is Rhonda. She's doing a PhD or a master's at UCLA. And they're basically editors. And then we have a staff of about 12 editors. And actually this year we have 24 interns, high school interns, uh, working for us. So, no, I don't read every article <laughs> that's posted. Um, but we do actually have a process where people can mail in, like the email address I just gave. I don't even make that call. Uh, I've been pushed out of the editorial realm because my editorial skills are so bad. Um, and then I forward it to them, and then they, they review it, and they ask me about the concept itself. Today we had someone, actually, Islam and Free Trade. They sent an article to us, and we forwarded it um, to them. But the website, I think, will change some in the next year or so to more of an institute, uh, where there will be courses offered and lectures, videos, and so on, and then also the written component uh, as well. We were nominated, I think, for the 2010 also Breast Crescent, so vote for us. If you can, we, we won last year, so it would be good if we could go for two, you know. If Colby can get two in a row, we can get two in a row. I think someone had, yes? Uh, what would you say to a person who's interested in Islam and the great figure and your key on the Islam that he's put up by all the PCs as a churches, you know, taking Islam with that Islam with his heart, and, you know, and can't mix with, can't mix gender with him. We can party and we can mix genders. We don't drink. We do drink certain things. But what do you mean by mixed gender? We're mixed genders right now. That's true, but what I meant was going to the club. Okay, okay, there you go. So go to the club. I've never, I've never been actually to, I've been to downtown Norman, but not Columbia. That was a long time ago, before I was Muslim. Um, yeah, well, one thing is that this is, a, this is the not, not the way to start. The Prophet, peace be upon him, did not start with people about what they can't do. And he took into consideration that people learn over time, step by step by step. And we should actually encourage people, just because you become Muslim doesn't mean that you're going to stop every single bad thing that you've done. How many of us are Muslims? I've been Muslim almost 20 years, and still I do bad things. All of us still do bad things. So the idea that suddenly I'm going to become Muslim, and bam. And unfortunately, we have this Omar Farooq archetype, yeah? Omar becomes Muslim, and it's like perfect. Or the Malcolm X, if you will, for Americans, archetype. Malcolm X becomes a Sunni Muslim, and it's just like, wow. How many people are really like that, though? I mean, I, equate, I, 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 you know, I, I equate Omar and Malcolm to like LeBron jumping from the free throw line. Not too many of us here could jump from the free throw line and dunk a ball. You understand what I'm saying? So instead of taking the, you know, the highest examples, which are very hard to follow, we should take more of the practical examples we'll talk about tomorrow in the Friday sermon of the Sahabas who had problems, man. Sahabas had Joneses. I don't know if Joneses are, but addictions, right? Sahabas who had psychological issues. Sahabas who had problems with their wives. 
Companions of the Prophet that had problems with their children, with drinking, with sex. I mean, you name it, it was there, it existed in Medina. So that is the, really the reality that Islam is addressing, the reality of human beings. And the Prophet said it, he said, everyone makes mistakes, and the best of those who make mistakes are those who repent. It's very clear in Islam. But we shouldn't start Islam from what I can't do. Because actually in Sharia, we have five major rulings. Uh, the ruling which has the most, as far as quantity, is the permissible. And the permissible is the largest ruling in Islam. The largest number of things you can do. But over time, we should try to build, you know, is going to the club, is drinking actually potentially dangerous for you? I mean, I was a teacher in the public school system. Most of the abused children that I dealt with or children that had serious cognitive disorders in elementary school were the result of alcohol. So there's a reason why Islam encourages us not to drink, orders us not to drink, because it harms us, it hurts us, does bad things to us, right? So step by step, people step by step. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I, I think talking about culture is uh, for the second generation uh, of the A synthesis, you mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what we're headed towards. I think as more converts and more second, third, fourth generation children, you're starting to see a, not a clash of civilization, but a synthesis of civilization. As Muslims, that, that's what we should talk about in the West. We're not looking for a clash, we're looking for a synthesis. So you find that, at least for, for the immigrants, I mean, I think some of us already have that, basically, where they're coming out of families that were much more immigrant-oriented, but slowly, slowly, slowly becoming part of you know, maybe mainstream culture, if you will, and are articulating, articulating a message that makes more, is more relevant. But also there's a problem, and that is that we find in many Muslim organizations, the leadership is not willing to pass the baton. And we see in some of these organizations, the same people have been in power for almost 30, 40 years. And we don't see a shift. And what that's leading to is, unfortunately, a lot of frustration. We find now new organizations developing, right? So it's almost like reinventing the wheel again, which is very unfortunate. So even in some mosques in major cities in America, you find that the younger generation, even young professionals, of Muslims basically are kind of creating their own kind of space to function. So there's still some, you know, I say we're still prepubescent, right? We're still having some growing pains here and there. Last question. I have to call it a night. Yes, brother. I guess one thing a lot of people, you know, especially people who are young and growing up here as Muslim, I guess they have a real, like, identity crisis as, you know, like, what is my role as a young Muslim in America? Like, am I, am I supposed to be going, like, uh, propagating Islam to other people? Or, you know, what exactly is my role in Islam? I think that's a big problem. Like, it's almost like an identity crisis. Like, they don't know, like, where they fit in, you know, in Islam. Like, you know. And the Prophet answered this question. He's asking about identity for um, second and third generation Muslims. The Prophet answered that when people ask him, you know, they ask him, what are the things we can do to go to paradise? He said, to be dutiful to God and be good, good to his creation. So the responsibility we have, you and I have, as young Muslims, or older Muslims, is to be dutiful to, to God, to do our best in, in being good Muslims. 
and secondly, to be good to people. The idea of running out in the streets of Colombia and yelling, Islam, Islam is the answer, is not really the way, right? In fact, it turns people off. But what, what has, seems to work much better, and actually this is what empirical data shows, is just being a good person, man. Setting a good example. Uh, there is a good book also I would recommend called Who Speaks for Islam by Dadia Mugahid, uh, which is basically done by the Gallup poll, which takes information from American non-Muslims and American Muslims and even worldwide about what do Muslims want. So you'll be surprised when they ask like American Muslims, what is it that you want most in America? It's not Sharia. It's not to establish Islamic law. It's basically to live a decent life, to be able to raise my children, to send my children to school. In fact, the, the concerns of non-Muslim America and Muslim Americans were almost the same as far as percentile. So being a good person, man, is being good to people, man. I, I can't speak for all of Americans, of course, but I know in general that when I was definitely not a Muslim, people coming to me and breathing religion down my throat was a turnoff. I don't know if it's still like that. I've been gone for seven years. But it was something that's like, you feel very uncomfortable because we have this concept of, we come out of the Reformation, you know, Martin Luther, personal relationship with God. It exists there as a rhetoric in our society. So the best way is to say, wow, here's someone who has good character, someone that, you know, sets the bar, someone that's decent in their morality, someone who doesn't lie, doesn't cheat. You know, th those are the things that really tend to, to matter to people, good character. So in that, in that book, by the way, she mentions, and that's what I was going to say, there's a study where, like, 67% of people who were terrified of Muslims. Yeah, more than 40 to 50% of them would change that perception just by being around the Muslim. Not having a Muslim preach to them and tell them da 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 And I think also we have to move beyond the adjectives Muslim country western singer, Muslim wrestler, you know, Muslim banjo player, you know, Muslim taibo. You know, why can't we just be the taibo? Why can't you be the country western singer? And, and that's actually a mistake in our community, that we continue to present ourselves like as something different and weird, instead of just being part of the community. Muslim civil libertarian. Muslim imam. I'm an imam, of course I'm Muslim. Right? <laughs> so there's certain issues in rhetoric that we need to also learn to appreciate culturally. Thank you for your time. It was a pleasure uh, being here. God bless all of you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. والحمد لله رب